0: hello i'm Offie. i'm august
1: i'm carl
2: and i'm jess welcome to the periphery a podcast about the biggest tech issues that we're grappling with as a society before we get started i want to thank you for joining us wherever you listen to podcasts and i want to encourage you to subscribe um and if you feel so inclined we've also got a patreon page that you can contribute to um but yeah without further ado thanks for joining today's conversation on technology and antitrust and the current movement to change the way that we think about competition in our digital lives.
3: Hello, welcome to The Periphery. Thanks for joining the conversation. One of my favorite pastimes, I would say it's probably the best pastime you could enjoy, is relaxing out in the sun on Stanford's campus on a warm sunny day. And the other day I was online and I wanted to augment that experience and I saw this lounge chair on Amazon.com and I bought it. It worked out really well. It's very uh, portable and comfortable. incredibly comfortable it's yeah. a
1: little heavy though you can't really carry it long distances that's true that's true uh you know in the next iteration they should find a lighter metal or something <laughs> yeah maybe aluminum i don't yeah. know what the current metal is but uh mm. we should we should add a comment yeah Do
2: you, guys all have this? Do you all have this oh we have like
0: five of these chairs mm, we'll but get there they did not come without quite the controversy right. i
2: would like to try one one day
3: you know i recommend everyone buy one but with the But caveat. this is
1: why we're talking today, because <laughs> maybe we shouldn't buy one.
3: Because I had this similar thought uh, a few months back when I bought that chair, and I just wanted to share it with everyone. So I messaged our classes group me. There's about 170, 180 people in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you should buy this chair if you like relaxing outside like I do. And within five minutes, there was I a... I had one at my door. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I'll say within five minutes, first, a lot of people did buy those chairs. Hmm. Uh, and then second, within five minutes, there was a, a response message that was very interesting. It sent a poster or a flyer uh, with a picture of Jeff Bezos, uh, CEO back then of Amazon. And um, he had he was grayed out and he had these kind of red or evil looking eyes. He, and he
0: looked like a devil.
3: Yeah, he was uh, very devil like. And
2: Demonized.
3: it was um, and this this flyer was advertising a strike on buying things on Amazon. And it just happened to have st- happened to start two days
0: after I had made this announcement <laughs> and <laughs> bought this chair. Um, and it like cited numbers like, uh, or what was it doing? They were talking about how big it was. Yeah.
3: How many online retail sales are used up by Amazon? Well, I think like this was, was, also, this uh, was how,
2: also around the time right. that um, certain as- activists had a guillotine outside of his home.
0: Wow. wow. I do. I didn't I, even yeah, know that. Was I, do Twitter, that. Yeah. I do remember that. I do remember that. And it's like, I think it's also in part in response to the fact that like Full Amazon size. got so big yeah. over yeah. COVID. It was yeah. like the best thing that ever happened to Amazon.
3: Yeah. And I think I didn't even flinch. I didn't even think twice before I sent this Amazon link. But then again, I didn't even think twice before I went on Amazon to look for something to buy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And it really got me wondering, this comment from a fellow classmate, uh, why is it that we're so disturbed that Amazon is so present in our lives if I enjoy my lounge chair so much? why do we care that Amazon is so big, so omnipresent?
1: Really, why is bigness bad? Right. And and that really goes to the foundation of some of the developments that are going on in antitrust law nowadays, right? Um, where the paradigm for such a long time has been the consumer welfare standard. And in some ways, you as a consumer were enjoying quite some welfare. And it was cheap.
0: And we, we got to walk this back, though. What what is this word antitrust that you talk about?
2: <laughs> have you ever played the game Monopoly?
0: I have. So a couple times. Um
2: it's not a favorite game of mine because I think it's not that fun once you're losing. But I hear the general the right. The general <laughs> contours. You're playing, you're playing, people are building houses, they're building hotels. And before you know it, it's basically impossible for you to win. Like there is a certain point of no return. They've gotten You mean
0: $1 versus 10 houses like right, can't right. come back? <laughs> right, they land on
2: like Marvin Gardens and all of a sudden they have a hotel and like you you have mm-hmm. to bow out. Mm-hmm. And that's really what what is happening here and what apparently um, people, or not apparently, but what fundamentally is somewhat un-American about anti-competitive companies.
0: So if I'm understanding correctly, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. When Carl talks about antitrust and the current things, you know, related to the tech company where we want to big, break up big tech. I think mm-hmm. that was a big part of Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. Right. What we're talking about is how do we want companies to compete so therefore there is at least a playing field, you know, before we get to the last round of Monopoly where you can't compete. You can't win. Nothing you can do. And... <laughs> For some reason we, we consider bigness bad yeah. right
2: and is, is this about an ideology or or does it really trickle down to affect everyday consumers and is it kind of impossible for us to imagine how it affects us because from our perspective things are going well
3: oh it's affected us in a great way things are so cheap
0: things come within a day or two that's true uh, we have enjoyed such convenience they even Give you free things. there yeah. so many times, and this is what I, this is what I personally felt. For Amazon was too big without really any understanding of what too big or too small meant. But literally, I was like, I got a mattress, that was a mattress pad. That was $300. I thought it was a mattress when I was an undergrad. I was like, I need to return this. And they were like, honestly. Keep Might it. as well throw in the mattress. <laughs> they they, they like, <laughs> may as well put in the trash. But,
2: you know, I mean, I Amazon, I guess maybe I, I didn't put this under that umbrella, but you know what they say about things that are free. If it's free, then you're the product.
3: Or, you know, in, in, uh, in other words, if it's free, you're the raw material. Mm. Uh, in many ways, it's the inputs that you give that are so valuable because really, Amazon has different groups of dependent entities. There's the consumers, and then there's those merchants that are selling things through the marketplace. right? Mm-hmm. And right. are forced
2: to sell them through the marketplace. They
3: must because we're all there. I didn't go to anywhere else. I didn't Google lounge chair. I went to Amazon. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to that kind of dominance,
2: Google. (laughs) (laughs) Let's. That's a good segue. I mean, we're not just talking about Amazon here. Like, what are the what are the players that we're talking about here?
0: Yeah, and let's let's talk about Facebook. Is Facebook monopoly? Is that too big? Well, I mean, I feel like a lot of hard part with this question, and, you know, I suppose that's what we're going to get to when we talk to our, you know, we got an excerpt for this episode, so we'll hopefully get some answers and some clarity, but I think that's kind of the issue. Is Facebook too big? Is Amazon too big? As you said, Google, they've been uh, accused of being a monopoly as well, or engaging in anti-competitive behavior, but you know we're looking at some of the cases some of the laws that are coming out or some of the um litigation and it's pretty difficult for a lot of attorneys and the lawyers and policymakers to identify what are they even anti-competitive in what is the market what is amazon is it a market player is it working in web services is it a cloud company is are it, you a
2: grocery store are you a
0: grocery yeah. store are you a clothes maker so it's like These, you know, if they're an anti-competitive company, in what way are they infringing on competition that we're not excited about?
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, this goes beyond the marketplace. And I think this is where the movement is going nowadays, where we like this idea of competition in all areas of, of life. This is something that we as Americans just in this is something that we see almost as an end in itself. We like competition in the political sphere. We like it in the marketplace of ideas. We like the idea of the meritocracy, at least to a certain degree. We have this idea that competition, just by virtue of, the, of, of its own internal dynamic, will produce better outcomes. Mm. Right. But the question is, does that still apply to digital markets nowadays? Mm.
2: And if you think about sort of, why do I care? I think the question is, if there were to be a new Apple today, like if there were to be a new group of people working out of a garage, Founding a startup, the do they have the same chance? The periphery. <laughs> do they have the same chance of really gaining market power, making a change, pushing the industry forward? Or are they sort of inevitably going to be acquired? And I think some of some of the venture capital trends, I mean, they're not they're not trying to help companies become big tech anymore. They're trying to help companies become acquired.
0: Mm-hmm. Inside like this
3: whole ecosystem. That's right. And and Carl, you mentioned movement earlier. And I just want to give some context to that. That since 2019, the FTC, several states, they launched an investigation into Amazon for abusive dominance. Then the FTC in 26 states sued Facebook. Then the DOJ in several states launched an investigation into Apple. And then the DOJ in 49 states sued Google. And then 15 other states also sued Google. And then recently 36 states also sued Google. All on antitrust grounds. This... There's a lot of activity.
0: There's a lot. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, and we'll get into this, but, you know, as I've delved into this whole antitrust world, I can see or I can be sometimes sympathetic to some of these bigger companies and some of the grievances with what the FTC is trying to do sometimes. Um, you know, a lo- Facebook or, you know, Apple, I think is an easy example. Apple has this marketplace, the Apple sto- app-, app store that they made to host apps. This is part of, their, this is part of their, their, their. you know, they're calling, it's theirs. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, you know, because of the marketplace, it has this conflict of interest where they can spy on companies, where they can monitor what's popping to maybe acquire it, as you were saying, or just to make their own with the talent they have in-house. And they have all these resources and all this information that's just incredible to beat. At the same time, they're the ones who made this ecosystem.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe they, in some ways, are protecting some sort of ecosystem like, they're, they're the gatekeepers to that. They're making sure that you meet the privacy standards. Mm-hmm. They're making sure that you meet various other regulatory standards. Now you can opt out important. of being tracked
0: all the time. The, the
2: thing is, how <laughs> how um, evenly are they applying these standards? And I think what some people have come to assert now is that they use it as a backdoor to sort of, if you're if you're not going to let us acquire you, then we're going to hit you with a you're not complying with App Store regulations. And so... No. Mm. We're not going to host you anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. I guess another thing that's, I think, running through all of this is the idea that there's probably the feeling that they are punishing success in some ways. Although, yes, nowadays, companies like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, of course, they're giants. But all of them kind of also just started um, from scratch, really. And, And they've had a very successful business model. And that has allowed them to grow to the degree that they have. And so there's probably just also a sense... Why are you punishing success? Um, right. why, why are you interfering in this process that in some ways, at least in the beginning, has been completely consensual and people have not been forced to buy our products? And so I think that is another undercurrent that we're, that we're seeing here. Yeah, yeah. competing values. Uh, competition is a value, but so is keeping what you earn.
3: That, that should not be taken away if it's your just dessert. Uh, and earlier, Afi mentioned the FTC Federal Trade Commission. And I think we're going to talk a lot about Lina Khan, a new chair that was appointed, a historic chair, uh, with our new ge- with our guest in this episode, a former chair of the FTC, Bill Kovacic. And uh, we're going to talk about competition. Why? Uh, what is it? Why do we need it? Why is it valuable? Uh, is it this punishing force like in Monopoly the Game? Uh, or is it uh, something... Uh, that we all need in our lives that is really a, a symbol of, of, of democracy, uh, and what is bad about bigness? We have to answer that question because why were people so upset about my lounge chair <laughs> <laughs> Bill, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Could you just explain a little bit about uh, who you are and what you what you do?
4: August, uh, thanks to you and your colleagues for the chance to do this. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to participate in this wonderful series. Um, my, my main uh, habitat is George Washington University, where I'm a member of the law school faculty. I've been there since 1999. I had a long leave of absence to go back to the federal government where I'd been soon after law school. Uh, From 2001 to 2004, I was the general counsel of the Federal Trade Commission. And then from 2006 to 2011, I was a member of the commission and I was chair of the agency for one year from March of 2008 to March 2009. I, I also am a visiting professor at King's College London. And since 2014, I've been an outside director on the board of the United Kingdom Competition and Markets Authority, which is their principal uh, antitrust enforcement agency. From all that, I'm uh, very, very much interested in the fields of competition law, consumer protection, data protection and privacy, international comparative uh, regulatory law and policy. And I suspect most of all, uh, I'm interested in the design and operation of government institutions, how they behave, how they evolve, and the characteristics of successful institutions.
3: And when it comes to what makes for an effective government institution, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the FTC? What, what is that and what does it have to do with antitrust exactly?
4: The FTC is one of two uh, federal agencies that enforces the U.S. antitrust laws. It is now, uh, in its current form, it's the uh, second oldest major regulatory institution after the Federal Reserve Board. The FTC was created in 1914, soon after the Fed was established. The FTC was designed initially purely to do antitrust law, competition law. Uh, It uh, evolved, migrated into doing consumer protection as well, and then Congress gave it formal authority to do that. For the last 106 years, uh, it's had a very broad mandate to do antitrust law uh, and using a, a special mechanism. Uh, uh, Section 5 of the FTC Act gives it a broad mandate to prohibit unfair methods of competition. Mm. Congress intended this to go beyond the reach of the existing antitrust laws to engage uh, the FTC in what one act, one scholar has called norms creation, mainly through the use of an internal administrative a uh, uh, mechanism which would have the FTC commission, the ultimately uh, issue opinions, it would embody uh, unique insight into business practices, uh, supplemented in part by uh, expansive information gathering and reporting functions so that the uh, commission would have uh, decidedly superior ability to resolve difficult uh, matters involving competition especially compared to generalist judges sitting in the federal federal judiciary. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the vision. The reality has been much more mixed, but this was uh, is an experiment of the progressive era to bring right. uh, uh, expert administrative authority oh. to bear upon uh, difficult, complex matters of law and economics.
3: And I think that that really brings us to today, Bill, where the FTC... And not just the FTC, but states and the DOJ have been in this streak of intense activity relating to the biggest technology companies in our lives, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google. And I'm wondering, what do you make of this moment? You said that the FTC was the birth of a progressive era. Are we in a new progressive era? And why now?
4: Uh, we are. It's an extraordinary one. The collection of cases you referred to, a monopolization case by the Department of Justice and various, various state governments against Google, separate cases uh, headed by the state of Colorado and uh, the state of Texas in a coalition of supporting states, uh, a monopolization case against Facebook brought by the Federal Trade Commission, a parallel case brought by the state of New York, A significant case against Amazon brought by the government of the District of Columbia. All of these constitute the most remarkable collection of government anti-monopoly cases uh, since the 1970s. Uh, And in terms of their broader significance, they are as important as any collection of cases brought by the public enforcement institutions since 1890, when The U.S. antitrust experience began. Uh, so why now? Uh, how yeah. did this happen now? Uh, yeah, it is a, a combination of interesting political and economic, and I'd say academic forces. Uh, since roughly the past uh, over the past decade, we've seen the development of a new literature, a new scholarly literature that raises serious questions about whether. American industry has become unacceptably concentrated. And with greater concentration, has come diminished economic performance, measured by the number of new startup firms, uh, measured by the growth in company margins and profits, measured by sagging performance in a number of different sectors. Uh, So the concern that a relatively permissive approach towards mergers and acquisitions have prevailed from the early 1980s up through the recent past enabled firms to achieve preeminence and to deny others the opportunity to enter and prosper. Another is that we are at the back end of shocks to the economy that occurred in 2007, 2008, 2009 with the global financial crisis with COVID. All of these had several effects. The global financial crisis caused enormous economic distress. It threw millions of Americans uh, into into poverty, Uh, deprived them of their homes, cost Mm. them their jobs, and created a a deep-seated suspicion about the role of business enterprises, about the value of capitalism itself, about the competence of government to effectively Mm. regulate and oversee large business enterprises and I think it created a, a stratum of discontent that uh, is crucial to the ascent uh, in 2015-2016 of two different political figures coming at the electorate from different directions, to be sure, but Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Uh, I think without that global financial crisis shock, uh, their ascent would likely not have taken place. And and the sense uh, as part of this uh, this movement that globalization has served the American public badly, that it's moved well-paying manufacturing jobs offshore and replaced them with nothing equivalent. So a a series of shocks to the economic system that had great implications for the way in which citizens regard their public institutions and business institutions, and Mm. a change that involved greater suspicion Uh, The erosion of civic trust uh, Mm. in the in the in the in the work of public institutions, Uh, a fertile ground for a rethink Mm. of an economic policy orthodoxy that tended to favor again from the early 1980s onward, a lighter touch in the regulation Mm. of business. Mm. And then another is the is the parallel emergence of extraordinarily significant, prominent, profitable and socially important business enterprises. Mm. Uh, The the famed quartet of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Their position magnified during the COVID crisis, the extent to which they became still more important mechanisms for joining people together at a distance, Mm. uh, providing them the delivery of of goods that they depend upon in order to live, the provision of services uh, that made Mm. it possible for them to do things like Attend class and go to school. The extent to which they became increasingly important conduits for information Mm -hmm. that people absorb in making decisions about the electoral process itself, Uh, maybe in a degree that these companies did not seek out, did not anticipate. They became, in the eyes of elected officials, perhaps citizens as well as a parallel government, Mm -hmm. Uh, collectively a parallel government that displaced the public institutions that we usually associate with governance and the maintenance of a democratic system. Again, I don't think they deliberately sought out this influence, but it came to them, maybe in a way that even overwhelmed them. And they've handled that position with truly mixed skill and sometimes notable failure in the way in which they managed information. So a constellation of forces that have created a moment in Mm. which a basic reconsideration of prevailing orthodoxy has taken place. Mm. And the perceived lesson of that experience is we need much more substantial, robust government antitrust enforcement as a way not only of protecting the economy itself, but protecting the electoral process and democracy itself. I'm
3: just thinking about those series of events and their effects that you just described and I'm trying to think about it from the perspective of the public, and it, it seems like in the past two decades, at least, it's been a very traumatizing time. And it seems almost as if a lot of the frustration, the distrust, it's about two illegitimacies, an illegitimate government because it failed to protect them from the financial crisis and the coronavirus, and a illegitimate coalition of tech companies that are so dominating their lives that they never voted for or elected. But I, I'm wondering where competition fits into all of this. If consumers or the general public are are angry or upset, uh, why don't they focus on not just electing maybe leaders that speak to them more, but better government that's more effective? Why why are they choosing antitrust as the tool?
4: Uh, it seems as though to an extent we have not seen in, in a very long time. Perhaps going back to the 1930s, where another grave economic crisis provoked a, a rethink of these institutions, the institutions referred to. The late 19th century, when tremendous upheaval in the economy and the political process gave birth to the antitrust regime, there seems to be a broad public sense, maybe not expressed in the technical jargon of antitrust law, but a broad public sense that these institutions, the private institutions, have become so immense that they are not responsive, so vast that they lack effective control. Mm. I don't think the public is, of course, uniformly opposed to them. Individuals marvel at the things they do, at the extent to which these devices that are key parts of our lives, this this thin little device that fits in my pocket mm. has all the power of an IBM 360 computer, many times over, that would fill the room I'm sitting in now. It has a very good camera to take snapshots, moving pictures. It's a wonderful communications device. It's an astonishing storage device. It's a calculator. Mm. And to have imagined even 20 years ago that it would fit in your pocket. And yeah. you carry that all with you, that kind of integration. That's an astonishing path of innovation yeah. that, that we all enjoy. Uh, we are astonished to use the medium we're talking with now. That's right. Uh, The remarkable capacity to speak with each other in this form and to communicate. And I think part of what the COVID experience has done, a byproduct of it, is that it's shattered the idea that you have to await personal interaction in order to have very effective communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that it's possible now to have conversations involving many people that literally cover the earth, as long as you can mm. try to get the time zones right. So, at one level, as citizens, we revel in these developments, mm. not only amazed by them, enjoy them, delight in them, but respect the institutions that did it. Mm. At the same moment, almost schizophrenically, we don't trust it, especially the extent to which the institutions in question collect large amounts of information about who we are. Mm-hmm. At one level, we realize that they become more effective as we tell them more about ourselves. Mm. But at the same moment, we trust them less because of what they know about us and what they might do with it, advertently or inadvertently. Mm. Uh, So this is a a longstanding ambivalence that Americans have had about large corporate institutions, well-documented by popular culture, and by political scientists at the time that the antitrust laws came about. There's a a famous cartoonist from the late 19th century known as Finley Peter Dunn. And he had a character, Mr. Dooley, who appears in his cartoons. And Mr. Dooley is often fond of repeating the aphorisms of Theodore Roosevelt, who was then the president of the United States in part of the period. And Mr. Dooley, has Theodore Roosevelt tried to capture his view about monopoly saying, the trusts are huge monsters. And on the one hand, I would stomp them underfoot. But on the other hand, not so fast. Uh, <laughs> a, a cryptic synthesis of the, the respect for admiration for successful large business enterprises, but mm. a mistrust and concern mm. that comes with it at the same time. And, and arguably on the part of a larger number of citizens, we see that concern. Again, mm. not expressed in the technical jargon of academics who, who need 30 pages in text to even say hello, uh, but right. uh, a deep-seated concern about a loss of control over their lives and their communities. Mm.
3: I'm wondering, as we go forward, as this movement to try to transform antitrust, to take back control in many ways, of our digital lives, at least. It seems like they will have to confront this dilemma, which is right now I enjoy one day shipping, very cheap prices, and a, a catalog of goods that we could have never really have conceived of to be so accessible before. And I'm wondering, are Americans really willing to give up this life of convenience and access for the sake of political and social control and something like a better democracy?
4: It's an enormous challenge to the to the uh, effort that I think you correctly describe as focused on transformation, not not modest reform of antitrust enforcement policy or the rules that the agencies apply. But what one uh, commentator in this cohort of advocates is called root and branch reconstruction. Mm. Uh, Don't do a little pruning, but rip right out of the ground these institutions and plant new ones and grow a new ecology of regulatory policy. One challenge that they will confront is that people enjoy these conveniences. They like that purple truck that brings it right to your door in a day. Mm. They like the fact that any number of service providers will enable you to use your smartphone, your laptop. Mm-hmm. to summon to you in a way that no one could have imagined even 10 years ago, a remarkable array of possibilities that you used to have much work much harder for. I think certainly one thing the companies are counting on that that half of the citizen brain will predominate and say, mm-hmm. back off, don't destroy this. But, but the transformation advocates are offering their program With the view of suggesting to citizens that you're paying a real price for this, it's not free. It's convenience that comes at the cost of destroying opportunities for other entrepreneurs to offer you something that might even be better. Mm. Destroying the possibility for new firms to emerge in the way that the giants did themselves even a short while ago. And that the other thing you pay with is information about you Mm. it isn't free that the great value that the platforms obtain by reason of having your custom Mm. is information about you information that is has an enormous commercial value so that at least a theme of the commentary of this body of commentary that's roughly 20 years old uh is that the exchange that gives you these good things is one sided that you don't fully understand what's going on. Uh, but what you are giving away is not simply ultimately control over your life. You're giving up part of your soul too. Mm. Mm. And to quote the, the great Joni Mitchell, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the wonderful composer and singer, Big Yellow Taxi, one of her her greatest anthems. Uh, <laughs> don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And uh. part of what part of what the transformation advocates are saying is bit by bit, the surrender autonomy over your life, mm. and you'll never be able to get it back. Uh, so they're portraying this as not just a battle over fundamental economic issues, but In so many ways, they say it's a battle for the soul of democracy itself and our institutions Mm. and the ability of individuals to exert any control over this process. Uh, uh, So it's shaped as a powerful debate, Mm. not just about narrow technical arguments of economic policy, but broad social and political, um, the broader social and political environment in which we live.
2: So August, welcome back from that really interesting conversation. I know it's, it's personally a topic that you're super interested in. We're all interested in it here on the periphery. We think everyone should care about it. I think it's really important with these sorts of issues to get the historical background. And I felt like we got a lot of that there.
3: I think Bill really gave this compelling narrative about why we got here. What are the forces that are shaping this present moment, this once-in-a-century moment, this New progressive era, as he described it. And what struck me the most about the way he described where we're at right now is his view of us, of the public. He talked about how schizophrenic the public is. The schizophrenia, I think, is a really big problem, not just for all of us, but even for me personally, of the dilemma between comfort and distrust, the fact that we respect the technology institutions that gave us our digital lives, and yet we have deep distrust of them shaped by the recession, shaped by the war on terror, shaped by the instability of the past two decades. That makes us fear their governmental power. I'm wondering how Americans can possibly resolve that schizophrenic fear that, that they suffer from.
2: So we've we've broken, or he's helped us break down sort of these general contours of some of the movements happening in antitrust right now. But another aspect that's interesting are the individuals, uh, the players that are making changes right now. And so that's that's what you two are going to talk about in part two of this series. So if for the people listening, if you found this conversation interesting, please tune in to the second iteration. We're going to talk about specifically Lena Khan, um, or as Afi likes to call her, Lean Icon, <laughs> and uh, what she means for the future of technology in this In this context, and what she means for people like us who are wondering um, how things might change and how things might improve.